Yeah, all these European and American and UN donors uh, suddenly had lots of resources for Afghanistan. So infrastructure was being done on a large scale, not only by NGOs, but by private contractors uh, working for these different development agencies. Large nationwide projects were created both for rural development and for education and for healthcare. A lot of indicators of development dramatically improved. Welcome back to the Rethinking Development Podcast, the podcast dedicated to speaking with and learning from international development practitioners of all backgrounds and affiliations around the world. Each week, we aim to rethink ethical behavior and best practices through the lived experiences and personal reflections of different practitioners. Our guest today is Paul Barker. Paul began his career as a Peace Corps volunteer in Iran before beginning to work with a variety of international development organizations, primarily in humanitarian contexts in different countries around the world, including Sudan, Ethiopia, West Bank and Gaza, Afghanistan, and others. Over the years, Paul has worked on addressing the underlying causes of different social issues in vulnerable areas through policy analysis, advocacy, and improved program design. He has held numerous country director positions with Care and Save the Children, where he has led programs that address important social issues such as emergency feeding, maternal and child health, rural credit and microfinance programs, water and sanitation, peace building, child rights governance, climate change adaptation, and more. Paul, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you, Safa. Maybe we can begin by you first telling us a bit about your time as a Peace Corps volunteer. Sure. Uh, I was a Peace Corps volunteer for five years in Iran, 1971 to 76. I have been interested in the developing world for a long time, uh, going back through high school and who knows when it all started. But actually, I left for the Peace Corps in Iran the day after graduating from college. And I ended up uh, spending my first two years in a village in eastern Iran, which is uh, the center of Nematalahi Sufism, as well as uh, just a small, very peaceful sort of uh, environment, um, mainly farmers and a few religious leaders, a few teachers, but a very interesting place to spend a couple of years. Uh, I then extended for a couple of years uh, in Shiraz, working as a teacher for the tribal high school, a, a boarding school for nomadic students who uh, came to Shiraz because uh, it wasn't practical to have high schools migrating with students up and down the mountains. That so was a very interesting way to learn about how education programs could be designed and to uniquely and very effectively address the needs of tribal people. And my fifth year there was as a field officer uh, overseeing and supporting the English teaching program for, for Peace Corps. It was interesting from a number of points of view. I mean, I suppose I went in with some naive thoughts about how somebody coming from America would obviously have a lot of things to share with these people uh, in, in rural parts of Iran. But also, it didn't take me very long to realize I had a lot to learn from people in rural parts of Iran. I was fascinated by the depth of the culture, the hospitality, and the genuine friendships that we developed. And I was also very impressed at how the civilization had developed in these desert oases that lived very much in harmony with the environment. And coming from America and the Vietnam War, that was a very pleasant 
contrast and a lot of useful lessons. So after your time there, you you began to work in the international development sector and you worked in rural areas also in Egypt and Ethiopia, correct? So could you tell us about how you, you transitioned or you began to work in that sector and what the work environment was like at that time? Yeah, I met my wife in the Peace Corps. And uh, one thing we wanted to do was live and work overseas to the extent uh, we could do that. And so we had applied to this organization called Option AMDOC, which recruited medical volunteers to work in as volunteers and obviously in medical programs around the world. And we didn't hear anything back. And so we kind of forgot about this until one day in 1981, I got a postcard from a little NGO called Lalumba in Colorado who wanted to know if I'd be interested in being their project manager in Sudan for a refugee health project. Well, this was all very exciting. The only problem was our son was six weeks old then. And so I thought, I would really love to do this, but but with a six-week-old baby, one couldn't think about it. But as it turned out, when he was seven weeks old, I could think about it. And so we um, ended up applying for and, and accepting these positions with this little NGO working with Eritrean refugees in eastern Sudan. We worked for room and board and even no money. So it got less money of that than we did with the Peace Corps. We enjoyed the work a lot, but then I started to realize that I probably needed to get a paying job. And uh, so I learned about professional development organizations, uh, having worked around them. And uh, a number of them got good reference to some people I knew who had been working in the field for some time. Uh, and CARE was particularly pointed out to me as one that uh, a friend in UNHCR thought did excellent work and had a rewarding time doing that. So I persisted and managed to get a job with CARE in the Sinai in Egypt. And it was a good introduction to rural development as a project manager for an agricultural project, working with cooperatives to develop greenhouses to raise uh, vegetable seedlings. This is a technology that they've been introduced to in the Sinai from the Israeli occupation, uh, but didn't have the resources and support systems to continue now that the Israelis had gone back uh, to Israel. So it was interesting working with and developing cooperatives to run that. And I know I made a lot of mistakes, but I also learned a lot about how one can interact with communities, the importance of getting a local organization to feel ownership of a project if it was going to continue. And uh, so that was a very positive experience. From there, we went to Upper Egypt to Aswan, worked to develop a microfinance project, and it continued on. A more of an organic way, one project led to another. Yeah, the, the whole career seemed to evolve that way. So from agricultural development to microfinance, then to Ethiopia, where I got involved with relief feeding and food for work programs and urban as well as rural programs, a mm-hmm. uh, bit of HIV AIDS programming. And then to West Bank, Gaza, uh, where we were trying to start programs from scratch and dealing with two complicated governments to work with. So, mm-hmm. yes, it just sort of evolved one, one assignment to the next. And it's incredible that your son was only six weeks old when the first opportunity was suggested to you. So you and your fa- your family always accompanied you in your work? Pretty much. There were a couple of times when we had evacuations. And so 
they spent a little bit of time in the States for one of our children. It was like six months. Uh, another one spent, uh, I think it was two years during high school in the States, but almost all the time they were with us overseas. So they had interesting experience growing up in a multicultural, multilinguistic environment. You mentioned that uh, eventually you transitioned to working in relief feeding and in, in contexts where it was conflict situation. Could you tell us about some of the ethical challenges that you, you grappled with during this stage of your work and just a bit about that time? Yeah, uh, there were ethical challenges from different dimensions. One was working with governments who really tried to impose a lot of um, structure and guidance and limitations on what you're able to do. It's important to work with governments because they are the legal authority in the countries we work in, but they also do have their own priorities and they sometimes would prefer to direct aid to areas that uh, they want their support to increase and to de deny aid in areas that they don't want to favor. They also can be very bureaucratic and you tend to spend a lot of time dealing with reporting requirements and getting permission and getting things authorized and it's just uh, the, the amount of time one in, ended up doing that was kind of frustrating. And we, of course, have internal issues. Uh, there were complicated food accounting issues. You manage a large food assistance program. We were doing up to 70,000 tons of relief commodities a year. So we had to redesign and improve the systems for tracking and accounting for all that food and venting its waste and dealing with responsible disposition of food that did get damaged, unfortunately. It became a very complicated process, and it's a kind of a different set of skills to, to manage relief programs than, than development. And then there's this intermediate sort of kind of programming that has both relief and development components. We did a lot of food for work work in um, Ethiopia in those years, providing employment to help communities build irrigation systems and roads and uh, erosion barriers and so on, uh, and paying them with food commodities. It was logistically challenging and complicated. We sometimes had a, a bit of corruption to deal with, uh, and so finding that corruption depended on the integrity of your accounting systems and your auditing, forever challenging. You also worked in a leadership capacity in, in many of these assignments. Could you tell us what was your motivation throughout the years? I mean, obviously, one wanted to improve the quality of life for the people that we were working with, which had to do with level of education, nutrition, shelter, but also it had a lot to do with improving the capacity of the national staff we worked with in our organizations so that increasingly they would play leadership roles. And it was interesting over the 38 years I worked in international relief and development to see uh, the evolution of roles and responsibilities because it started out with primarily Americans, the organizations I worked with, being not only country directors, uh, but also project managers in rural areas. And as the years evolved, these roles became increasingly international. So we had Canadians and Europeans uh, doing a lot of senior roles. And then it became a lot of people from the countries we were working in, and not only at project manager level, but also moving up to be deputy country directors, country directors, heads of finance, and uh, so a tremendous evolution of human resource capacity and also the trust, I think, that organizations felt able to give to staff that they'd worked with and developed over the years. 
Earlier, you mentioned that some of the challenges that you faced included working with government. There are different layers of power dynamics in every community, in every country, and sometimes that can be a challenge to navigate even between international development agencies and governments and communities. What have been your experiences with challenging power differences and different power relationships that are involved in executing a project or advocating for a policy or any of these things? Yeah, um, there are different levels of authorities one deals with. So you start out with government, which gives you a national legitimacy to be working in a country, and they have their layers of authority at the provincial, regional, local levels. Uh, so they become counterparts. But the most critical people to deal with are leadership in communities. I think we started by working disproportionately with whoever was recognized as traditional leadership. And uh, so you get the elders who are almost always men uh, and older men and more prosperous men. So then you realize after some time that they're more interested in their interests than the poorer people, than in the interests of women and uh, other minorities. So one has to then evolve systems to give equal voice to the other members of the community. Creating organizations specific for a project would often require 50% or more female participation. A microfinance project we ran in Tanzania ended up with over 70% of the participants being women. And one of the lessons learned is that women were uh, much more responsible at managing finance than men were. They were more honest with the accounting systems and they took loans and they develop projects mainly to support family needs, be it education or health or housing. Men tended to want to take loans for consumption, for their pleasures too often. I don't want to badmouth all men, but the, as a generalization, women were a safer part of the community to work with in microfinance. And I think that's probably generally true for a lot of development activities. In these efforts, in these initiatives, how were you able to use your your language skills? As uh, you've learned quite a few languages over the years, was this something that was your own personal interest and commitment or it's something that you felt you really need to do in order to facilitate the work that you were doing? I don't speak that many languages. Arabic and Persian, I speak pretty well, uh, and some key Swahili. But I guess as a result of that, I ended up spending most of my years working in countries that speak either Arabic or Persian. And uh, I found it extremely useful. A lot of foreigners working in those countries don't speak very much of the local languages. But I think you get a lot more credibility with staff and with communities if you can talk directly to people in their own language. And it just, to me, it was just a lot more fun. When we went to Tanzania, from Sudan, we did end up taking Kiswahili classes for about six weeks. So I didn't get an in-depth knowledge of Swahili, but enough to get around pretty well with uh, shopping and with basic conversation. And uh, people's eyes light up a bit when you can speak to them in their own language. And the more you can speak and the more they can feel comfortable telling you what their concerns are directly, I think encourages them and also gives you confidence that Things are not being um, filtered out of conversations by translators, which 
can be a challenge or a danger if one doesn't have a local knowledge. Absolutely. It's a different level and depth of communication when you share the same language. Working in humanitarian settings can have a, an emotional toll or physical toll. These are sometimes very difficult circumstances. Could you speak to us a bit about how you were able to work in that environment or process any of the emotional challenges that come up with working in such a complex emergency type environment? It is a new reality to work in an area where people are very obviously starving. And we had some terrible famines in Ethiopia in our first couple of years there. And part of the work is to do assessments. And we, so you go out as a small team with uh, not much more than paper and pens and uh, vehicles to, to meet people and assess local situations and plan future distributions. But you would see people who were terribly emaciated, and there was nothing you could do in that moment for them. So it was just an emotionally difficult thing to deal with. And it can give you an additional sense of urgency that we have to make sure that the systems are set up, that people know when to come and where to come as soon as possible. Uh, but you can't address all the problems as, nearly as quickly as you want. So that, that was challenging and uh, emotionally difficult. Uh, I spent um, a year working in Sudan. 2006 to 2007, and most of our work then was in Darfur, and it was in a pretty dire situation with some huge refugee camps, IDP, internally displaced people camps, where hundreds of thousands of local Darfurians from different tribes would be forced to live because their villages had been burned and their livelihoods destroyed, and there was no obvious end to this crisis, and so it continues to this day. I was perhaps a little too outspoken on this with staff or whatever, so I did end up uh, being made persona non grata in Sudan after that one year and had to, to leave sooner than I would have otherwise. And I don't know really what one should have done. It was a very difficult thing to witness. I wasn't speaking publicly on the media about things we had seen and experienced in Darfur. But I would talk to staff about it, and it was in the emails. And some of this confidential information was somehow accessed and leaked by some of our staff to newspapers and government. It was a very frustrating situation. And so I, I was forced to leave that year. And a couple of years later, the government of Sudan kicked out 12 organizations, including CARE and I think Save the Children. It's, it's, it's this frustrating thing. You have to work with governments, but sometimes the governments really do not have the interests of their people or all their people at heart. And uh, that's probably the, the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. As you say, it's, it's very frustrating. Is there any tools that you would say you know, helped you through that difficult time? I think a sense of community helps a lot. So, uh, you know, all the international NGOs working in, in Sudan or in Ethiopia or Afghanistan at these times were having similar problems. So the knowledge that we could uh, share experiences and come up with common strategies and to the extent possible craft advocacy messages that uh, would be acceptable was useful. Also had uh, strong support from head offices and 
Another example might be in Afghanistan. I worked there four periods of time, but the first time was 95 to 99. And um, the Taliban were in the southern part of the country and they were threatening Kabul and we didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, so in March of 96, four of us from CARE went down to Kandahar to talk with the provisional leadership of the Taliban in Kandahar. And we negotiated it a simple agreement to explain to them what we did and who we were as an organization and to get them to commit to allowing us to operate in areas that they controlled and to crossing front lines. Now, it was, I think we were the first organization to do this and it probably something that could not be done now, but at that point it was before Al-Qaeda and the terrorist restrictions and problems we've had in later years. But Taliban were recognized as not a very nice organization even then. We had a lot of support in designing this agreement from care headquarters in uh, London and in the U.S., and uh, we had excellent staff to work with in getting this done. And we had a philosophy that to the extent that the government acts responsibly, we will treat it as the responsible authority in an area. And I think that's a strategy to help encourage responsible behavior of governments. And we had to recognize that the Taliban were in a position to provide security in areas they controlled and, and to deny it if they so choose. The, the agreement we negotiated worked well and enabled us to work uh, safely in the areas they controlled for, for quite a while. That philosophy of we will work with uh, responsible governments as long as they act responsibly that really strikes a chord. In the country example of Afghanistan, which is a country you worked at in different time periods over the years when you take a historical kind of look on the country context and the, the way that the conflict has developed or the different chapters of it over the years. And when you think about the work that, you know, humanitarian aid or international development organizations and agencies that they've done over the years and, you know, the impact of it or where it stands now, when you take a step back and just think about the work that has been done there over the years, what do you think? Like, what do you think about the current situation and what are your thoughts? Wow. Uh, <laughs> that's a pretty big question. Uh, a few observations, though. Um, one, in these first years working there under the Taliban government were perhaps the easiest times because there was not much of a government. Uh, and we could work with local Taliban authorities in communities. Uh, we were able to establish homeschools for girls. And we had something like, I can't remember, 70,000 students, uh, two-thirds of them girls in these homeschools by the end of the Taliban times. Uh, these were things we could negotiate and work locally with community uh, shuras or councils, which would include the local religious leader who, of course, would be a Talib at that point. And sometimes he would also be the teacher in the school. So it was interesting what one could accomplish in an environment where one would have thought these things were not possible at that time. Uh, so we have lots of stories of being able to accomplish difficult things under the Taliban. The, the, the best years to work in Afghanistan were just right after the uh, Taliban left government. Um, so 2002, 2003, the amount of resources for international development greatly increased and dramatically. 
it was very difficult to get funding earlier years to do reconstruction and development work. And then there's almost this curse of too many resources and how to manage it responsibly for a few years afterwards. But the Afghans were still in pretty good behavior, so security was still very good around the country. The government was very appreciative of NGO efforts, and so those were, in a lot of ways, the most rewarding years to work in Afghanistan. Uh, then security, starting in 2003, but especially later, 2005, 2006, and, and beyond, every year kept getting worse. So the last time I worked in Afghanistan was 2017. I was only there for four months, but the security had gotten complicated enough that one could not walk on the streets of Kabul like one used to. I used to ride my bicycle all over Kabul, uh, but one certainly couldn't do that now. I mean, both for security and just, uh, well, in terms of kidnapping and terrorists, but also just the congestion of traffic make it uh, impossible now. The government in Afghanistan, I think I always found reasonably supportive of, of our work. The challenge sometimes became how to work with the government, but also appear to be sufficiently independent that you didn't become a target of the opposition forces. It's not only Taliban, but the Haqqani network and ISIS and other groups that um, oppose the government. And so those became tricky issues to juggle and to keep going. You mentioned that around 2002-2003, the funding increased for projects in Afghanistan, and there's a politics to funding. Could you tell us about your experiences with that and how you think that affects the work that you know agencies are trying to do and how to navigate you know, the politics of funding? Yeah, all of these European and American and UN donors uh, suddenly had lots of resources for Afghanistan. So infrastructure was being done on a large scale, not only by NGOs, but by private contractors uh, working for these different development agencies. Large nationwide projects were created both for rural development and for education and for healthcare. So a lot of indicators of development uh, dramatically improved in Afghanistan. These projects uh, were funded in different ways, sometimes directly by donors. Increasingly, though, donors would give money to the government and the government would subcontract NGOs to do uh, work. So it became logistically a little more complicated. Coordination was important, but also challenging. And then as security has gotten worse and interest of donors has waned, the needs are still huge, but it's more and more difficult now to get resources to manage projects. It's also more difficult just because security is more challenging to, to implement them. This issue of getting money through the government, but also money to be seen as adequately independent of the government makes it uh, more of a security challenge to work, especially in areas where the Taliban have a strong presence uh, than would have been the case with other funding streams in, in previous years. Speaking of security challenges, you uh, mentioned to me before when we spoke that one issue that is becoming more commonplace is the interface between military interventions and the military and aid agencies or development organizations, not just in Afghanistan, but in 
in different countries. I don't know, maybe you experienced this in the West Bank and Gaza or in other countries that you worked in. What have been your, you know, some of the ethical considerations or the issues that have come up in your experience when uh, the military and the aid sector kind of interface? Yeah, it uh, can be quite challenging. I first had experience interacting with the military in 1991 after the first Gulf War. I worked in northern Iraq um, and southern Turkey. There had been a great uh, expulsion of Kurds to southern Turkey, and then the, the foreign militaries had arranged enough security in northern Iraq for them to come back. So there was an interesting role that the military could play and did play there. Uh, obviously, non-governmental organizations are not in a position to provide security, so that created a stable environment. Also, the military had tremendous uh, logistical capacity uh, with their helicopters and trucks and so on to move people and commodities from one place to another. And in an area like northern Iraq, the Kurdish area, uh, they were not seen as an occupying power by the local people. So it seemed like it was an environment where it was appropriate to coordinate with the military rather openly uh, to most efficiently deliver resources where needed. Another example of where I think the military has done a good job uh, with their logistical capacity was in Pakistan after a huge earthquake in the north. Uh, the American military was able to divert helicopters from Afghanistan to provide emergency relief to areas that were cut off. So there is a rule in non-contested areas for the military to use its unique logistical support systems to provide aid. So I'll be hopefully clear on that for the start. But it also can become problematic, especially as areas are more in contention, as they are became in Afghanistan after 2003, 2002, 2003. And the U.S. military started a program to provide humanitarian relief and development aid directly from the military to communities around Afghanistan. And they saw this as a way of doing a couple of things. One is providing assistance. Their ulterior motive was to get intelligence and to hopefully get acceptance from the communities for their presence. But they were not seen neutrally, especially in the southern parts of Afghanistan. And the problem then became that the lines became very much blurred and confused between what the military was doing and what professional development agencies were doing. And we felt vulnerable as a result. The military didn't go any place without their heavy equipment and their guns and their protection. And we never went anyplace with heavy equipment, guns, or protection. So we were quite vulnerable by comparison. And as it become confusing, who are these people and what is the difference? I think it became easier for some communities to think that we were a part of this military occupation of Afghanistan. Even Colin Powell, who I have a lot of respect for in a lot of ways, once referred to governmental organizations as force multipliers. From his point of view, from the military point of view, what we were doing was bringing development aid and some stability by this uh, assistance that was going in and the 
acceptance that should be providing communities. Well, it makes sense, I guess, from the military point of view. It, it still does not make sense from the uh, non-governmental organization point of view. Mm-hmm. A related challenge was trying to convince the military of our perceptions. And we would have meetings and we had presentations we developed to explain to the military why this was a problem and why we had to maintain our separation and distance from what they were doing. And we'd appreciate it if they were not involved in relief and rehabilitation work and development work. It was a difficult message to get across and it was made all the more difficult because they kept changing the military over six months on their different rotations of soldiers in and out. So we sort of get some people oriented to understanding our concerns and then they would be gone and a new crowd would be in. This was the problem in Afghanistan, but I want to also talk about Africa because the United States has developed what they call AfriCore to provide military assistance to countries across Africa from east to west, mainly across the Sahel. And so there's a fairly substantial American military presence providing security training to local uh, militaries in these countries. And there again, they are trying to use development activities as a way to gain greater acceptance for their presence. And even though a lot of these countries are not as dangerous by any matter of means as Afghanistan, uh, still this confusion can can grow and it becomes official US government policy to support these this military presence and their involvement in development work when we were in Tanzania some funding became available for HIV AIDS work and we were told that if we wanted to apply for that funding we would have to agree to work with US Navy and uh, their presence in Tanzania at that time. So we chose not to apply for it. These should not be conditions of development, you know? Absolutely. All the lines are being blurred. Neutrality is hard to establish. It's very challenging. Yeah, very much. How we get out of this now that we've gotten into it. It was interesting you started with the example of Turkey, where, as you said, maybe it was a bit more effective just because of what the, the logistical capacity, the sense that it was, it was not an occupying presence, but every country, every context has uh, its own challenges. When you think about the role of the media in these kind of humanitarian contexts, when it comes to these kind of development projects and issues, have you found that they have generally been a player that has contributed to raising awareness, to helping with advocacy, with helping with messaging, getting across? Or have you, have you come across situations where they really perhaps did not contribute positively? Maybe it was harmful, their, their involvement or their interventions or their stories. How have you, you know, experienced the interface between the media and the sector, the development sector? The media does play an important role, and a lot of what they do is they raise international awareness and consciousness of problems. And if different droughts and famines and guerrilla warfare is not in the news, then the donor countries don't know about it, and resources are less likely to be made available. So uh, one thing that most NGOs do is uh, have strategies and protocols for trying to work with the media to share uh, our 
analysis of what's happening and uh, what we are doing about it. And so I think there's a lot of positive things that uh, can and do happen uh, as a result of the media's role. They sometimes uh, get stories wrong. They sometimes want to sensationalize something that can exaggerate problems, and that makes the work more difficult. I guess one of my main, you know, since retiring, I've spent uh, a a fair amount of time working on uh, Iran advocacy issues and trying to support this joint comprehensive plan of action and uh, efforts to normalize relations between Iran and the rest of the the world. Because I spent these years in Iran. So I was all excited when the Obama administration negotiated this agreement, and I've been very distraught uh, when the Trump administration has destroyed it or done its best to destroy it. And I think the media is too often gullible to reporting information that comes out of the government uh, and treating it uncritically. And uh, so I'm concerned that that's going to contribute to a very dangerous situation. I know it already is contributing to a very dangerous situation with Iran. The media can also play a very negative role if it uh, is not adequately critical of its own reporting. Right, exactly. It can be used for both good and bad, depending on the content and the interest. You mentioned your retirement, and I wanted to ask you about that decision at at that time in your career where you decided to retire as a compared to when you first began. How did you feel about the industry and the changes that had happened in the sector? What was it like at that stage? What had changed? What are the biggest changes you've you've noticed or you've experienced over the years in terms of how developed work is done or how aid is delivered or any of these issues? I think in many ways, uh, development work has become much more professional over the years. Uh, it's learned a lot from mistakes made, and it's, uh, it's, it's gone through rigorous processes of evaluations and monitoring and lessons learned studies to, to know better what works and what doesn't. So I think there's been a lot of positive change in that sense. I alluded to the fact that development work is increasingly owned by professionals from developing countries. I think that's a very good sign. Uh, It's rare now when a a Westerner would end up as a project manager in a rural part of a country in Asia or Africa or Latin America. So that's a good news in the sense of uh, development success. It's also sort of sad in a way because part of what I've enjoyed is, is working in rural areas. And we still get to go to rural areas and meet rural people as parts of monitoring and evaluation and so on, or just periodic field visits. But it's not the certain level of in-depth experience I had in the earlier uh, years working in relief and development programming. These changes can have different side effects as well. When you think of the people you've met, the people that have really stood out to you, your whether it's your colleagues or your friends, just people you've met in the countries you've been, is there anyone who, you know, stands out to you or uh, perhaps a few people that you think that really embodied the 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 spirit or the skills or the kind of qualities that um, you you think are really important for this type of career path or who really inspired you over the years or kind of became your heroes in some way in this sector? My sense is to say I know a lot of those people. 
engineers and managers, Afghan engineers and managers we had working in Afghanistan, uh, managing our, our field offices, uh, negotiating with Taliban, with solving difficult problems, keeping the logistics of things moving ahead. Just amazing people, accomplished incredible things under very challenging circumstances. In Egypt, I had a very talented bunch of staff in the 80s when I was working on this microfinance project development. And none of us had particular experience in microfinance before, but we worked hard and we came up with a program which not only promoted uh, community-owned and managed uh, revolving loan funds, but also initiated and supported a wide range of uh, community development activities. Very impressive staff. And these projects, I've been pleased to learn, uh, continue uh, even now, long after the funding ended. So that's always encouraging. And not all projects do that. But when they do, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a rewarding feeling. There are other staff who work in main offices and do project activities that maybe aren't so romantic, but they're really critical. So accountants who put in incredibly long hours and will fight for integrity, even when uh, it's got a financial cost with fine mistakes, we'll come up with new systems, whatever. Very inspiring people in their own ways. One thing I've learned over the years is the importance and the value of auditors. Auditors sometimes make your life miserable because they're always looking for problems. But at the same time, if there are problems, we need to know about them. Um, and if we don't find them soon enough, uh, then they become bigger problems. Learning to work with and support auditors has been uh, an important uh, thing to learn. I, I've come to <laughs> begrudgingly appreciate them. I, I didn't initially realize what an important role they could play. As you say, they can be something to embrace, not to, to run away from. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they can be. It's, it's, it's interesting because you... They can be very difficult. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's yeah. so many challenges yeah. that can be revealed. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, go off to audit commodities and they come back and say, well, you know, uh, you've got a quantity of oil missing from this uh, warehouse. And, <laughs> no, I didn't know that, actually. <laughs> and um, so, you know, there are systems to deal with that. You file reports, you hold staff accountable, you recover losses. But if we don't discover that, uh, somebody else might, and it becomes much more embarrassing and uh, much more expensive as a problem. Sometimes it's better to deal with them sooner rather than later. When you think about the challenges that you've, you've faced in a position of leadership, is there one that particularly stands out? You mentioned, you know, working with auditors, because in a position of leadership, yeah, there's a, a different sense of responsibility. So is there kind of a, a particular situation where it was quite, quite challenging or that comes to mind? I think a, a key skill to have is working with people and supporting staff. And uh, maybe it's a, it's, a, it's a style of working, but I found that taking this time to get to know staff and to, to work with them, to listen to them, pays tremendous dividends, to, both in program design and management. They usually are working much more closely with communities and with the activities of projects than I am. 
um, especially as one get higher and higher in management. So you have to a listen to them, work closely with them, and uh, make sure they feel confident to to speak their mind and to make sure their their contributions are heard. The challenging part comes when you have underperforming staff who, for whatever reason, uh, don't get the memo, they don't uh, get things done on time, they don't understand what's required in a report. So using different techniques to work with them over time is, is perhaps a bigger challenge. There's any last thoughts you would like to, to share with us or leave with us to think about? We live in a challenging world where the disparities of wealth and poverty are great, uh, where problems, uh, environmental problems, are greater than ever before. I think that's another change we've seen over the last few decades is how belatedly the world has recognized we have a huge climate problem. Uh, I think another challenge we have in development is that sometimes our successes can lead to other problems. So, so we had tremendous successes as a development agencies in improving standards of healthcare around the world. And so people are living much longer. Uh, but that also is exacerbating our problems of population growth and the environmental challenges that come with that. So there, there are these tensions, I think, in what we do that we have to be sensitive to. And then we have to help the communities and the countries we're working with deal with the next generation of problems. And I think we have to listen very well to them because often they, they know answers that we don't know. So listening mm -hmm. is, is really key. Yes, that's a theme that comes up uh, week after week as I speak with different people, the importance of listening. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your reflections and your thoughts and your time. It's been, it's been very interesting and there's a lot to, you know, ponder and continue to think about. But thank you so much. Thank you, Safa. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you to our listeners. Please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and Google podcast platforms, where you can also rate and review our episodes. You can also follow us on Instagram, where our handle is at Rethinking Development. And should you have any listener questions that you would like me to ask our future guests, please feel free to email them to us at RethinkingDevelopmentPodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to continuing similar conversations with you all in the weeks to come. Mm -hmm.